You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are as threatened or promised, depends on how you want to look at it. Uh, We are going to look at the second pilot, the original series Star Trek. This episode, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Episode synopsis. The USS Enterprise is on a mission to become the first known Earth ship to explore beyond the edge of the galaxy. As they approach, they discover and retrieve a ship's recorder from the USS Valiant, a ship lost 200 years ago. Could it be that another ship has previously left the galaxy? Second-in-command Mr. Spock tries to decode the badly damaged ship's recorder. The Valiant was caught in a storm and swept past the edge of the galaxy. When it returned, the ship received heavy damage, and several crew members were killed. Through the garbled data, Spock gathers that they were frantically searching for information on ESB. And then, could that be correct? Did he hear the captain of the Valiant order their own destruction? Captain Kirk of the Enterprise gathers his division heads on the bridge, including newcomer psychiatrist Dr. Daner, for one last consultation before they leave the galaxy. With no hard data and the need to learn what's out there, Kirk orders the Enterprise to continue. The edge of the galaxy is a bit of a misnomer, for as they approach, they are confronted with an expansive energy field of some kind that defies analysis with their equipment. As they attempt to pass through it, The ship and members of the crew are subjected to wild electrical forces. Heavily damaged, Kirk orders the ship to exit the barrier. Two of the bridge occupants have been knocked unconscious. Dr. Dana was mildly knocked down, but helmsman Gary Mitchell took a strong shock. He seems to be all right, but his eyes are glowing. The Enterprise is crippled. With their warp drive damaged, Earth bases are years away. Spock has found a connection between Mitchell, Dana, and the nine crew who died in the barrier. They all had the highest ESP ratings on the ship, Mitchell's highest of them all. Dr. Daner argues that ESP is a largely ineffectual ability in humans and that there's no danger from it. Spock argues that perhaps there are other forms of ESP that might be. The crew of the Valiant was frantic for information about ESP. In sickbay, Mitchell feels fine, and the readings confirm that. They also cannot find a reason for the glowing eyes. Mitchell is one of Kirk's oldest friends, and when he visits his friend in sickbay, Mitchell knows it's Kirk even before he sees him. Mitchell's been catching up on all his reading, and while friendly, there's an air of superiority as he chats with his old friend. Kirk orders him to remain in sickbay for more tests. Momentarily, Mitchell's voice booms unnaturally. Spock is observing Mitchell from the bridge. He's reading books at an incredible speed, and that speed is increasing. As they watch him on the monitor, Mitchell seems to turn to them and look back. Dana is in sickbay studying Mitchell. Mitchell jokes that maybe his medical readings should be abnormal, and suddenly they are. He just thought about it, and it happened. Then he makes himself die and come back. Mitchell tells Dana that he's gone through half the ship's library in a day, and she asks if he remembers it all. He does, in eidetic detail. Things are beginning to get a little intense between them when Navigator Lee Kelso arrives to check on his friend. Mitchell immediately tells him the starboard impulse pack is almost burnt out, 
and a skeptical Kelso beats a hasty retreat. Mitchell tells Daner that Kelso's a fool. He'd seen that damage and didn't notice it. Mitchell saw the image in his mind. At a staff meeting, Kelso was showing off the damaged part exactly as Mitchell described it. Daner arrives late to the staff meeting and is critical of Kirk and Spock for treating Mitchell with suspicion. Kirk asks if Mitchell has demonstrated any powers and Daner downplays what she's seen. Engineer Scott reports that recently the ship's controls went crazy as if they were operating themselves and all the while on the monitor, Mitchell was smiling. Kirk, again to Daner, has he shown any powers like that? Yes, and you didn't bother to report it. Daner argues that an improved human could be a good thing. The next step in human evolution. Countering that, at his current exponential increase in power, soon the crew will be nothing but an annoyance to him. After the staff meeting is adjourned, Spock gives his recommendations to the reluctant Kirk. Make course for the uninhabited planet Delta Vega. Hope they can use the mining equipment there to fix the ship and strand Mitchell there before it's too late. The only alternative, kill Mitchell now while he still can't. Kirk orders a course to Delta Vega. When they arrive at the planet, Kirk and Spock go to sickbay. Not only does Mitchell know what they plan to do, he chides Kirk for not following Spock's recommendation. You should kill me now while you have the chance. But it appears to be too late. Mitchell overcomes Kirk and Spock with lightning bolts. He doesn't want to be stranded. Powerful but not all powerful, Kirk gets a moment to knock Mitchell down, and he is sedated. They get him to the transporter and beam him down to the planet locking him in a makeshift cell. The equipment seems promising, and Kelso thinks he can repair the ship's engines. Kirk gives him one other task, rig up a self-destruct mechanism for the mining facility, and, if Mitchell escapes, blow it up. In the cell, Mitchell has gone full-on megalomaniacal. He tries to walk through the force field, but is repeatedly thrown backwards until his eyes return to normal. Spock urges they kill him now. Mitchell pitifully calls for his friend, but then the glowing eyes return before they can act. In the control center, Kelso has just finished the repair job for the Enterprise when cables slip around his throat, killing the man with his hand on the self-destruct button. In the cell, Mitchell mocks Kirk's compassion, deactivates the field, stuns Kirk and Spock, and takes Dr. Daner in to look at her newly glowing eyes. Later, Dr. Piper finds Kirk and revives him. He saw Mitchell and Daner head off. Kirk follows with a phaser rifle. Mitchell now dares think of himself as a god. He can create a paradise on this planet. He tells Daner she'll enjoy being a god. She's on the same path as him. Mitchell detects Kirk, and he sends Daner to talk to him, just to show her how insignificant humans are. Kirk makes his appeal to the psychiatrist and Daner to help him out. Mitchell has godlike powers with all his human frailties, all the ugly things that humans dare not let out. Mitchell will dare. Mitchell arrives. Kirk shoots him with a phaser rifle to no effect. Mitchell is going to kill his old friend, but he's going to toy with him first and make him pray to him. Kirk makes a last appeal to Daner. Above all else, a god needs compassion. Absolute power corrupting absolutely. And in the end, there will only be one of you left. This strikes home, and Daner attacks Mitchell with lightning bolts. Caught off guard, Mitchell is weakened. They trade lightning bolts, and both collapse. Mitchell's eyes fade and Kirk seizes his chance. They fight, and when Kirk gets the upper hand and is in a position to kill Mitchell, he hesitates. Too late. Mitchell's eyes glow again, his strength returning. With time running out, Kirk manages to use the phaser rifle to drop a giant boulder on top of Mitchell, killing him. Kirk goes to Daner, who apologizes, but says, 
can't know what it's like to feel like a god. And she dies. The Enterprise, fully repaired, leaves orbit. Kirk records both Daner and Mitchell's deaths as in the line of duty. The end. All right, Bill. Uh, Star Trek, where no land has gone before, the second pilot, the unprecedented second pilot given to see if they can sell a TV series. This is unprecedented in that the network footed money for it to do it, and Desilu, the studio, with the backing of uh, Lucille Ball, who was the owner, Boom. gave them the rest of the money to make. Yeah, Lucille Ball is the one who, who made Star Trek go. She, she didn't wow. know anything about it, but she wanted to do things, and the execs were not willing to fight with her over it. And so <laughs> they, um, well, Desilu is Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. It's the name of the studio. I'd never uh, heard of the studio. Right. It's now Does been subsumed long ago by Paramount. No, no, no. And there's actually some uh, anecdotal evidence that when the idea was presented to her, she thought Star Trek was about USO stars, uh, a team of USO people touring military bases. So, look, but nonetheless, she is the person who said, now we're going to make this. And a couple other shows like Mission Impossible and that at about that time that were Desilu's um, uh key properties they were trying to make a go of that studio and and so uh it came at the right time last night bad legacy no no not at all um not at all still making and, and i understand she has another one yeah so um it's um went out it was on a, a vastly reduced budget from the last one i think it's like two hundred thousand dollar budget so the other one is something like six hundred thousand roughly speaking so this was uh-huh. Hugely less, $400,000 less to make this. But the argument is, you know, one, you've already built all the sets and the costumes and stuff. And two, uh, we want to see if you can do this as an actual TV show on a budget that's more realistic. So uh, this is this is what uh, this is what we got. And again, you're not uh, said this before, but you're, you're not hugely familiar with the, the Star Trek as a as a fan. Um, so what. Did no, I mean, it's, think... it's certainly been a few years since I've watched, well, the cage aside, it's been a few years since I've uh-huh. watched an episode. When I say the cage aside, I have to I have to say, I've, uh-huh. my, my kind of very uh, completist attitude towards these things has required me because this aired as the third episode when it actually got yep. broadcast, uh, has required me to watch The Man Trap and Charlie X before watching this. But prior prior to to recording these podcasts, it had been yes, it'd been quite a few years before I had watched any Star Trek, and I've certainly not seen every episode of it. And so, <laughs> the impressions that I had of the cage were kind of measured against a slightly fuzzily remembered idea of what the original show was like, and you know what the kind of style was. Now, well, I've got. Hmm this episode to compare um, with it as well as a couple of kind of, if you like, the more regular episodes. Yep. I I mean, I think there are big changes between The Cage and this. It's almost, I mean, you say the the set's already there, they can reuse them. Okay, sets, yes. But it feels like a different show to me. I, I, yeah, I mean, I can, I can see that. They definitely... I mean, that is the point of a pilot. And I, I should point out, right. so they make a pilot, or at least back in those days, a lot of times they made the pilot, and then 
the studios would give a yay or a nay, and they'd work out some deal with this, or the, I should say the networks would give a yay or a nay, and the studios would give some, they'd get a deal with the studios, and they'd they'd give notes, and they'd say, here's what we don't like about it, here's what we do like about it, here's what we want you to change. And when they go into production, they pretty much ignore the pilot. A lot of times, the pilot never comes to light. I mean, River. and that is sort of the expectation, because it's sort of like, here's a rough draft, now let's go make the show. So Star Trek's had that opportunity to go through two of those. The first one to the second one, and the second one to the the regular episodes. And you can definitely see that there's a there's a change from from this to the two episodes you watched. Um oh yeah. That too. I also because you watched them, I thought I'd better watch Man Trap and Charlie X as well, just in so that I could try to come at this with your frame of reference because I did try to convince you to watch Where No Man Has Gone Before without watching the other two because it's not, it was, I don't even think it was even meant to ever air. It's just that Star Trek was a hard show to make. It was an expensive show to make and they fell behind schedule almost immediately and they're like, yep, air it, go ahead and do it. Doesn't matter that the continuity doesn't work. Doesn't matter that the uniforms are all wrong. Doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. Just air it because we gotta. We can't go out with dead air. We have a contract and we will absolutely be destroyed if we don't meet that. So they very rapidly changed their mind and aired that and aired that episode. But I genuinely think that it's a, a very, very bad idea to have aired it third. And I think it's an even worse idea to have aired it after Charlie X, which <laughs> we can discuss uh, you know, two episodes yeah. about true or people with godlike powers and human frailties uh, in a row is it, probably I did, not yes. the. I, I I did think I did think that was a very strange decision. I also didn't necessarily spot the continuity issues that you referred to. I mean, even it's not that I I'm particularly observant about fashion and things. Anyway, I didn't noticed that they were in substantially different outfits because I thought, you know, maybe they've all got various different really? uniforms that they wear at different points. And obviously one of the things about this is that there is a lot more in it than the first pilot about the whole Star Trek mission. <laughs> they're, go they're going beyond the edge of the galaxy. And yet there it wasn't it wasn't necessarily, you know, watching through the other two episodes, like Charlie X is brought over by another ship. So it wasn't clear that they had left behind the 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 kind of regular map part of space yet, I guess. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Particularly the, the original series, they were spent a lot of time out in unexplored space. <laughs> and one of the things about, personally, I next generation is they spend a lot of time in already explored space. And it gives them the opportunity to have some different kinds of stories when you're dealing with people you already know, you know, have some background with. But uh, yeah, I kind of like the I kind of like the we're deep space explorers, and obviously there's deep space explorers you get in this particular episode. Well, yes, I mean it's certainly yeah coming up against the unknown. I mean, I guess the other thing I would say about the the question of airing this. I, I have no idea how much this kind of played into their decision, but it's that it's really, really good. I mean, it is. 
It's a really good show. Despite it being whatever, a third of the budget of the cage, there are just a, a, a great number of ways in which it is a vastly superior episode to that. But also, I, I'll be honest, I kind of felt like watching The Man Trap and Charlie X was a bit... I mean, it wasn't It wasn't that I was, I was necessarily hating every minute of it, but it did feel a bit like eating your greens, you know? It, whereas this, this episode, I just... I thought it was incredibly well-structured and well-written and well-directed and well-performed. And the scale and pace of it matched what, you know, the, 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 the kind of, it didn't drag, but they, they, they had 50 minutes. They told a story that fitted into 50 minutes. They had, you know, the, the limited cast and, I mean, I wasn't actually even expecting them to have a planetary set. Most most of it is kind of sort of corridors and the bridge. Yeah. And um, so it, it feels, in a sense, a lot more claustrophobic than the cage, which is largely sort of planet set, even though, obviously, it's all studio studio filming. Right. So from that point of view, it, it felt like a small piece, but... You, you know, just in, in production terms, it felt like a small piece, but it did not feel like the issues that they were dealing with, both kind of intellectually, because they were they were addressing a a, a problem that was to do with kind of, well, something that was essentially unknown to mankind, as well as a kind of serious moral problem, and kind of things that really had emotional depth because of the relationship that Kirk and Mitchell had, which I, you know, I thought they did very well to kind of establish and which I thought Shatner kind of really sold in terms of the, the you know, the the being the captain performance that, I, you know, I think he's terribly good at. Yeah. But the, the, the carrying the weight of that on his shoulders and yet not, you know, the, you got the nice contrast because Spock, in, Spock has obviously changed a lot. Spock was Spock was playing the this is the rational action, whereas Kirk was getting sort of balance that duty that he 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 clearly takes very seriously alongside his own kind of deep personal connection with the man. So yeah, really really good. A captain along with a god needs compassion. Well, you know that's <laughs> so it's I, the, yeah. the parallel that they're drawing here, and and of course that's what Mitchell is mocking at some point it's like you're a fool for being nice to me because like well uh, yeah no i i i have always felt that william shatner has gotten a bit of a raw deal he can do really good work and he sells this i mean he 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 sells from the opening scenes when he's playing with spock playing chess and you know, it just it works i mean it it, it just works immediately Oh, uh, that character. And I switched to second for Spock. There was one thing I noticed in this episode, and, and we talked about it in the cage, is that Spock is smiling and, you know, doing a little bit of shouty, and, and, and he does some shouty in this episode as well, and he does some smiling in this episode, although a little bit less overt. Um, there's a line from Dr. Daner that said, like, people from your planet don't feel the way we do. Literally. That's a different line than what we're told most of the rest of the time is that, oh, it gets more complicated, but Vulcans don't feel. The only Vulcans do feel 
this is from you know 50 years of of vulcan lore that vulcans do feel they suppress it that they train themselves to suppress it but the way daner says it it's like it actually makes more sense you don't feel the way we do you are different and and you have a different experience and you have a different you know emotional reaction to humans and that allows spock to be exactly what we see here a guy who who can be amused a guy who can be turn it off and and rationalize it and be dispassionate uh on that and in a way i kind of like that portrayal better than what they kind of go for a little bit later on where he's a little bit harder edged about that well i don't know i mean i saw i saw well i don't know because i you know i don't i don't have that kind of breadth in terms of the performances that he's given that i've seen but what i would say is there's a, there's a definite edge in this episode I, I i feel like they don't they don't duck things here it's in, in a later episode Fox, logical approach is 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 kind of critical to the plot in this episode or or look at it oh, the yeah. other way around the plot in this episode really kind of lays out how differently spock approaches some of the decisions having to be made here i i, I think what i'm kind of getting at is that in later episodes um spock's face will be far more stoic and passive and there will be breaks when emotion shows through but they are, they are breaks. They're cracks. They're chinks in his facade, and Good I don't work. think he has that here. I, I don't feel like when he's playing chess that that is a, a rare moment where you see Spoke, Spock kind of. He's almost smug when he's talking with when he's playing with Kirk on the game yeah. until Kirk beats him. I think also happens in Charlie X, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, which is another mistake, but it which he attributes you know, to the, Kirk. Illogical approach, yes, to 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 flying. So, yeah, no, I um, I I, if if ever there were a pilot that you watch and you go, this is, I don't, I have no problem with this pilot. I mean, yes, the uniforms are wrong. Yes, the there's a little bit of, a couple of the cast members are wrong, and and, but I don't look at this one and go, yeah, this one needs this needs work. You need to change this, 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 and this. It's all. Now it's like, no, nah, you could have gone on with this the way it was, and I think you would have been in great shape. I should point out, we talked about this before, about how Roddenberry had went on a crusade, if you will, over the years to talk about how the first one had been rejected because it was too cerebral, which, you know, plays well with the audience. You know, when you tell the audience, oh, you like this, oh, the yeah. network execs thought it was too brainy for you. Well, of course, you're you're just sucking up to the audience there. You're 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 playing the audience like, yeah, we're we are we are brainies, and <laughs> you know, but that wasn't the whole story. Yes, it was. It had to do with with cerebral ideas, but so does this episode, right? These definitely. are these are definitely um, the network executives recorded in other people who were present, like Herb Solo their histories of it. It's like they also did not like the eroticism of the cage. Uh, one of the things when they said go on to make the next pilot is for God's sakes, don't have any green women and bumping and grinding in it, <laughs> you know, and, and don't hire your mistresses and get rid of Spock. But uh, they fought for one <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but another thing 
that made this work for them and it fits. I, th I think it fits the episode beautifully. But at the same time, if you try to put yourself in network executive mind, you go, oh, yeah, yeah. It ends with a fist fight. You have, you have this this whole battle of ideas and superpowers and it ends with a knockdown, drag out fist fight. Yeah. Which is what they wanted. More action. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right. I, I, yes. I was assuming that would be that would be something that would satisfy the network. I mean, and, it, you it, know, and it, their perceived audiences. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. an action show. It feels a little bit like, you know, the obligatory punch up. And yeah. it's not for me necessarily the highlight of the episode, but I don't feel like they get the ending wrong because I think the whole thing is about this kind of struggle. There's the, there's the internal dilemma that Kirk is facing, which is coupled with what is, you know, essentially building up to a power struggle. And so this is a kind mm -hmm. of physical embodiment of that power struggle, if you like. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't, he has no superpowers, so it has to be at no. that level. And I think they... But, 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 he get, but he gets out of it. I mean, he, he kind of acquits himself without disgracing himself in terms of using his fists. But clearly he's fighting yeah. a Superman and it's not going to, it's not going to win the fight. What wins him it is he wins it with words. He wins it with talking, da talking Dana into taking action using her superpowers. So yeah, in, in a way, yeah, it, that's, it, it, it's not as if it comes down to a kind of physical test of strength as resolution to the story. It's classic Kirk. It's classic Kirk using using his words to to sway. That's what he is good at. I mean, yeah, sometimes we have to shoot him up and sometimes we have to, but but his words are good. And he's right on point too. He Kirk is a smart man. And he you know, he targets Daner's psychiatry to get her to see how awful Mitchell will be. And then once he does get to that point, then he turns it on against her by making her realize he's going to do that to her. He's just need her either. And Ooh. eventually there will only be one of them. And so not only does he, he use her understanding of humans, but she, he also uses basically her insecurity as a human being against it's, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of uh, chess work, if you will, for, for setting her up, which, you know, we know I, I mean, Kirk beats Spock regularly at chess. Spock calls it illogical, but it is not. It's Kirk outsmarting Spock. <laughs> he does it so all the time. And, you know, it's funny when people look at Star Trek and, you know, oh, well, Spock is the brainy one. Well, yeah, kind of, but... What? Don't don't sell Kirk short as the guy that runs around and beds women and punches people up. He's every bit as sharp. There's a reason he's in command and Spock isn't. And and that's no slight against Spock. That's just Kirk is an impressive character. Well, it's certainly my sense of of, of Spock. And you know, with the, with the caveat that this is based on my recollections from many years ago, and it certainly wasn't the case in the cage, but the the but the, the character of Spock is not quite so much about how clever he is. He is a clever man, but 
it's also about how he uses logic and the strength that he de derives from that or the, or the you know the 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 way he's able to kind of apply his intelligence so powerfully because he's able to use logic in a way that is as it were unclouded by emotional responses mm -hmm. and that doesn't necessarily mean that kirk isn't as clever as he is but it just means that kirk will react differently because there's a different balance going on in his decision making he may be mm -hmm. more impulsive he may quickly be angered or hurt by something and that oh we've all experienced that right you you yeah you don't think as clearly when you start to see red or you feel a you know very sad or so right i don't think it was ever my my sense of spock that he that it was him being a super brain it's just that he's very dispassionate i guess well he is to some degree, a super brain. His power of recall is extremely high. And if you ever need somebody to calculate the square root of 3468.571, he could do it as fast as speak back to you, right? He's, yeah, brain works it's a, differently. It's a but it's about logic and not, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll throw up my, my all-time caveat in Star Trek. Spock is not actually advocating for a, or the Vulcans for that matter are not actually advocating for a logical society. They have never managed to do that. They are a dispassionate society yes. because they make flaws in logic all the time too. And it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, they can logic themselves into any position they want, just like anybody else can, but they do it without the, the emotional equation. And that's, yeah. And a, and a thing that we don't see in this episode and you know it's not a not a problem per se because this episode stands up beautifully the kirk spock and mccoy as three gives them the opportunity to discuss those facets mccoy representing emotion spock representing non-emotion and kirk taking that sort of controlling and and view in the middle so that that they can they can talk through the situation which maybe makes it easier for the audience. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think we really have any reason to believe that Kirk couldn't work it out in his head by himself. But uh, but then, you know, no, but we it, do I mean, Spock is the one who's presenting the ideas about killing Mitchell. And did that occur to Kirk? Or was he surprised well, I, by it? I, I, you know, I guess to kind of pursue that that uh, theme around this passion, it's, it's that it, it couldn't could have occurred to Kirk it probably would have occurred to Kirk given time and obviously it's a time limited situation but he is he's reluctant to think to consider it right he, mm -hmm. he you yeah. know you you you've got to address yourself to the kind of the various contingencies and outcomes of different courses of action but you can't even con consider what those outcomes might be if you're not willing to entertain the possibility of taking that course of action in the first place and the, the kind of very understandable emotional responses where you don't take that course of action. And so I don't, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily about Kirk not being able to work those things out. And I think the kind of caricature that I, I, I mean, I don't know if this is me misremembering or whether it's of the 
the showmakers sort of falling into the the archetypes they'd created, but it would be around Spock, like you say, giving giving you recall on facts or calculations, and Kirk being focused on making decisions, so weighing up choices, in which sense the kind of modern understanding of how things might work there would be you could kind of replace Spock with Google because he's basically fulfilling <laughs> the same role. And I don't think they do that in this episode. Spock, as you say, has he he presents option, he advocates courses of action. He is he I mean he does make a choice about bringing the laser rifle, phaser rifle. Yeah. Great big rifle phaser anyway. Rifle. Yeah. Um and and yeah I I I do I do quite like it. I like I like the fact that the the character of Spock is much more feels much more distinctive. I mean he has more to do, but he feels more distinctive than the Spock we saw in the cage. Right. And I guess that's partly about the rest of the ensemble, so kind of rearranging you know, giving giving the strengths to to different characters with a different team on the bridge now. Um but I think it's also actually about the fact that this really is much more of an ensemble piece. Oh, yeah. The last episode was very much, you know, the captain is in every scene and it's all about the captain and the captain's struggle and how, how the difficulties he's facing and how he's going to resolve it and solve the day. And obviously, Kirk gets the climax in this. He goes off on his own and faces you know what Mitchell has become but on the way the other characters get a lot more screen type yeah to just one last thing on Spock and I'll point out because Spock is presenting ideas you know she there's a choice to how you present your ideas as well right and I suspect that Spock's first thought was we need to kill Mitchell just like Kirk's might have been I mean, they got that all the way back from the Valiant. They, they, you know, they're not, they're not stupid. If the Valiant captain ordered their ship destroyed, then the Valiant captain knew that this, whatever happened, had to be stopped. Kirk and Spock know that from before they leave the galaxy. They just don't realize what it's applied to at first. So Spock probably comes to that conclusion immediately. We need to get rid of Mitchell. But when Kirk, Kirk chides him and says, try to feel for a minute. This is a man I've known 15 years. I can't do but not. I need specific recommendations. And Spock turns around and gives him a specific recommendation that is not kill Mitchell. It is a useful one. It is make course for Delta Vega. It's an automated planet. We might be able to fix the ship. So priority one, we might be able to fix the ship. And we strand Mitchell there. So it's it's he's already filtered out what Kirk is going to say no, I think, to killing him. Right? First choice, kill him. No. Okay, second choice strand him somewhere so he i think he presents it in the right order to kirk this is this is a good suggestion it might save our lives the ship it might save everything it doesn't kill mitchell but it does you know probably kill mitchell and so you don't have to feel bad about shooting him or whatever and and when that says well i can't do that with then your alternative is kill it so i mean yes i mean i i agree i agree he presents it well a little bit of me was thinking is there a kind of rhetorical purpose to the way he does that because like you say he knows the option Kirk is not going to take but he presents both options to make 
the unpalatable option more palatable because by contrast yeah. killing him you know that's that's even more unpalatable so and what other options do you have blow up the ship kill everyone aboard and that's that's the fourth or the third option that is not discussed at all but um kind of is because he he gives kelso the order to kill sure. himself if mitchell gets out because yep. kelso would go too if he flipped that switch so would everybody else there if there was anybody left in the building at the time that happened so yeah it, it all around it's i mean it's just it's a really really good episode it's uh unfortunate that sam a people samuel a peoples who wrote this only wrote one episode of the original star trek i think he wrote one of the yeah. animated series a couple of years later but this is his only uh and he's a a, a very seasoned television writer over the years right. so he, yeah but this was his this was his one and only uh i should i, I feel like it's talking a little too much about the background but i should just add a, a couple things once again, they were presented with a choice of three stories to make for the second pilot. And this is, this is, I believe, this is the new one that's brought to the mix. And then the other ones, the other two were ideas that Roddenberry had put on the list of ideas to do for the first pilot, one of which turned out to be an episode called Mud's Women, which... Again, Roddenberry put these forward as his three pilots. Mud's Women is a story about space prostitutes. <laughs> and as as one writer puts it, odd choice when they already gave him feedback about the eroticism in the show. Like, uh, okay, um, here we go. And then the other one is an episode called The Omega Glory, which also got made. Both, both Mud's Women and The Omega Glory both got made and were later episodes of Star Trek. And I put the Omega Glory down as one of the worst episodes ever made of Star Trek. It has it has one redeeming feature and it's worth it to anyone to go out and watch Captain Kirk reading the preamble to the United States Constitution dramatically. But uh but that's that's it. Otherwise <laughs> like it's just not a not a good one. So, yeah, no, this was the best of the bunch and by far the best of the bunch they made. In, term, in terms of the the episode, the, the kind of choices that are made, you, you, I mean, you mentioned the fact that Kelso is in, Kel, Kelso is asked, there, there, are, there are heavy discussions in this. Kirk, Kirk is talking about killing a crew member um, or, you know, this, Spock is advocating. This is what, this is what Kirk is considering. And in fact, you know, ultimately he does, and not just a, a crew member, but a friend of his. So the fact that he tells Kelso he must be willing to to kill himself, and then in the end, the fact that they don't kind of dodge the fact that there is still, in a sense, a, a Gary Mitchell in the, the 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 entity that Kirk is facing. Because, I, I mean, I think some along the way, I was kind of a bit uncertain I think a lot of things that work really well about this episode are how clear everyone's motivations are. So, and I think a lot of that comes down to really, really good direction. But along the way, I wasn't quite sure whether Mitchell was being possessed by some sort of intelligence, because there's still the question of where does he get this kind of spike in ESP from? But I think 
the, yeah. a lot of the dialogue, particularly the stuff you alluded to about the kind of the, the, the psychiatry, is intended to show that what you have here is a human whose capabilities are being incredibly rapidly accelerated, faster than he can learn to deal with that in a human way, I guess is the best way of putting it. And it allows it allows a kind of exploration of, I mean, I am going to deduct points for absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I thought that was <laughs> gratuitous. But it, it, it allows a kind of exploration of what that kind of power, what that kind of imbalance of power can do and like you say, it and 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 you know it it it's I, I'm a bit surprised the network didn't object to this, but it's it's kind of having a go at the gods, I guess. Oh, because yeah. it's the gods, maybe it's all right because you know gods means like the the Norse gods or the Greek or Roman gods who were a lot more human and consequently a lot more entertaining than the kind of gods yeah. in monotheistic religions and. And uh, I, I, I think it, it was fairly clear there's more, more that kind of thing. But it, it is definitely drawing parallels there in terms of yeah. the power of God and the power that Kirk has to wield and the way in which he has to do it humanly. Well, I'll, I'll throw a couple out there then. In the, in the, the first thing, you, as you say, there's that, God's idea we don't she doesn't speak it but he makes some comment about being like a god and Never. he reads in her mind goes oh blasphemy nah right <laughs> I mean so clearly Dana is thinking oh you're going don't go there for in in the back of her mind that's you know that's a step too far and he's like yeah you'll like it trust me it's gonna be good but what's the first thing he does on the planet I mean apart once he escapes he creates a garden. Huh. God creating a garden. <laughs> oh, yes. Then he makes fruit for them to eat. And do they eat it? Oh, yes, they do, because there is no reason not to. Right? <laughs> it's like it's like here is the apple and there is no and there's no prohibition because there is nothing to stop us from doing whatever. It, it it's yeah, it's definitely not. It's definitely poking a little at the uh, conventions. There's there's no doubt about that in, in the story. But as you say, they call it gods. And I think even if they had not called it gods, I think maybe you'd get away with it because the audience knows he's not a god, right? He is, this is, this. he's going to take a fall for that. He's called himself a god and God's going to punish him. Through Kirk, well, obviously, but you know, so I think think you might be able to get away with it and get that past the censors, even if they had uh, uh, he had just called himself God instead of yeah. But, well, I yes, yeah. I mean that you, that's not how it works with the one God. It it is kind of how it works with you know the other sets of gods. The idea that you that humans could walk amongst the gods or that gods could get their comeuppance. You, you do get that, but I guess the networks are not going to feel as sensitive about those things as they would about any kind of parallels with Christian, cri, cri, yeah. Christian kind of Judaism. 
if that's the word. Yeah. Theology. Well, that's what I want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean I think I think I think the other the other thing is that they I, I kind of mentioned the way in which the direction sets out their reactions or their motivations very clearly and I'm not going to talk about Charlie X a lot, but I I kind of feel like what they what they did very effectively here was they built up quite gradually the power that Mitchell was accumulating and they did it in a way that our heroes could realistically expect to have time to work out what was going on uh, yeah. you know especially given that they're not they're not fools and they they kind of worked it out and extrapolated from what they knew what was likely to happen and started building plans based upon that and so all of that required a certain understanding of how they understood the threat and what what they thought was going on and correspondingly bu- building a threat that was real and where their reactions gave us all a sense of jeopardy without it getting out of control too early. Again, that comes back to the kind of pacing question. And I thought in particular they did the way that Dana develops really nicely because obviously she's affected by the, you know, the original zapping, whatever you call it. Yeah. But then that sort of gets pushed to one side because she shows no effects. But every every time she sort of comes out with a slightly inappropriate, you know, maybe maybe it's a good thing that man is evolving in this way. And it's, it is not that it, the idea isn't an interesting idea. It's that it's kind of a non sequitur in the conversation that's taking place. She's advocating a position that doesn't quite make sense unless you think something is happening to her. Which well, you know, even, even she may not be aware of, and so they build that up quite effectively, I think, and then it 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 gets paid off properly. I I will say that I'm sure that the first time I watched this, I was completely and totally surprised when her eyes turned. Uh, of course, I was probably seven, but in subsequent viewings, I I don't know watching it you know, for the podcast this time, I was struck at how well it is layered into the performance. But I don't think that I I did not attribute her defense of Mitchell to that. But I think I think you're right. I think maybe it is. And I just didn't I just thought she was you know, she's got the hots for him. And so she's she's kind of you know, interested. I know when watching this this time, the scene where Kelso interrupts them and he's saying, are you sure it isn't something else, doctor? You're sure it isn't something else you're feeling? I can tell you every time up until this time watching this episode, I thought he was talking about, are you feeling something for me? Because that was, the, you know, the very first thing that they set up in this episode was that Mitchell hits on her and she shoots him down cold. And but I... Th- yeah. So I think that yeah, is part I, of it. I, I think I think that I think that's deliberately establishing I'll come back to the way they do that because have things to say. But I think what they're doing there is setting up deliberately the fact that she is not interested in him to make that clear. And so what you what you are seeing then is potentially a developing attraction on her part, but it's a change that is occurring. But actually, also potentially, that 
that it either in parallel or kind of intertwined with that is the fact that there is a change occurring in her that she is being brought close to Mitchell because the same thing is happening to both of them albeit faster to him and so there, yeah. there's there's a sympathy there for that reason and possibly a kind of that that brings them closer because the 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 more advanced they get, the further away they are from everyone else. Did did you notice that through the course of the episode, Mitchell changes his term of address at Kirk as things go on? It's Jim at the beginning. It's James as uh-huh. his powers are developing in sick bay, and by the end, it's Kirk. And there is that scene in the cell where he falls back against the wall and his eyes change. The first thing he says, Jim, right? He's he's already moved uh-huh. Uh-huh. way past Jim. He's on to James at this point. And, and then he falls back into that. And I don't know, is that a plea for help? Is, is that I know what's happening to me and do something? Or is that... I, is that just I'm um, you know save my life so that later I can kill you, <laughs> kind of thing? I, I don't I don't quite go, but I I also want to say point out that I think that's beautifully done with the force field in the eyes because it sets up what happens at the end. It sets up the fist fight at the end. Yes, it, it you know, and it sets up the fact that Spock is like now now when you've got the chance, and Kirk doesn't do it, so <laughs> he's got to. Later, he gets the chance again, and he still can't bash his head in with a rock. But, which, yeah, okay, fine. Right. I'm not, I'm not arguing that uh, that he shouldn't bash his head in with a rock, or that he should bash his head in with a rock. But actually, I, in in retrospect, no, it's, it's the the going, yeah, you should have, yeah. <laughs> in retrospect, he should have bashed his head in with a rock. He got lucky that he was able to take him out with a rock and the phaser rifle later. Which but, uh, I can't I... think of it. He took him out with a rock. He still took him out with a rock. He, he just had to do... Oh, just a bigger so rock. Kirk does a little rock, and he doesn't get to do it. Mitchell pulls up an even bigger rock because I've got superpowers, and then Kirk takes him out with technology that can bring down an even bigger rock. Technology defeating gods. Very true. There we go. <laughs> Very true. That's our superpower. I, 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 will, I will agree that um, I kind of registered... I, I was thinking it was... Chekhov's eye-changing force field and so I was expecting there to be a payoff from what we had seen there but I thought it was going to be that somehow they rescued Mitchell by zapping him back into his human and then somehow keeping him there controlling him there but I I did feel like that would have been a cop-out and they didn't cop out and so I think credit yeah. to them for going with yes this is still Kirk's old chum Mitchell but it is power crazed Mitchell and there is a dilemma there there is a very kind of real dilemma and that's kind of what powers the whole episode more and more so as we get into that final scene between realising he has to kind of you basically yeah he has to kill the guy but also not wanting to do that because, you know, he's basically mm-hmm. also committing a murder. I think that's a. I think that's another thing that Star Trek, and partially it's the era that it's of, is that they they try, they try really hard, but sometimes the answer is have to kill. Mm-hmm. 
And I wish I could say that that is not true, but sometimes you just don't have a choice. I find it a really tough one because I think that the the moral argument for doing it here is a consequentialist one. And I am very, I dislike kind of consequentialism as a moral basis. But at the same time, it's very hard to see how you could make any other decision you would make would lead to consequences that I would find incredibly difficult to live with. So it's it's a very powerful argument. There's a scene where Kirk says to to Piper, he says, all right, uh, you go back to the ship. Wake Spock up. You guys go back to the ship. If I haven't called you in 12 hours, get the hell out of here and tell Earth to come back and bombard this planet with deutronic radiation. And I'm thinking, I don't know how far away Earth is or how far they have to go, but you know, it's they're at the edge of the galaxy. It's going to take them, a, and this is the wild frontier, it's going to take them a little while. By the time they come back, Mitchell will be able to swap those starships out of the sky. You know, he, he'll probably be able to core the planet out, put a rocket engine in it, and fly Delta Vega wherever he wants to go in the, <laughs> in the universe at that point. Uh, you know, there, there is no time for that. I mean, it's, it's a nice try. It's like, come back, wipe the planet out, get us out of here. But yeah, no, not going to, you got to try happen. You? Yeah. The, the time is, the time is running out. Running out for Kirk on this one. Yeah. The other thing that struck me about how carefully they kind of developed that progression, both in terms of the growth and growth and the powers, but also in the important role the relationship between Dana and Mitchell played in that, was that, I mean, bear, bearing in mind that I did not know, this is a pilot, mm-hmm. I did not know who was intended to be regular cast in this and who was this right. week's guest star. And so a part of me thought, I mean, my guess was that Lockwood and Kellerman were guest cast. But I don't know why I thought that, because I didn't really know it. And you do get into a a point in the episode where Mitchell and Dana have quite a lengthy scene that's just a two-hander. There's none of the, quote, lead cast in there. Right. They are carrying that scene between them and it's it's a few minutes long i think and yet clearly they were guest cast because they both died by the end of the episode so yeah that was always the intention but it seemed to me to show remarkable confidence for the show to do that and especially in a pilot i can see how when you were watching if you watch this cold that you the first thing you would think would be that daner is a guest cast because they literally bring the heads of staff on board and Dr. Piper says, oh, by the way, I'd like you to introduce you to Dr. Daner, who is a specialist in fear reaction in humans who came aboard at the Denebit colony, I believe it was. So that feels like welcome our guest cast member today. <laughs> but but Mitchell being but, but it would just obviously a pilot to say part welcome of the to whoever. True. Yeah, but they don't have to do that to anybody else. Kirk, Bach, McCoy, they're all just doing their jobs on the ship and you know Mitchell's obviously been there a long time and he's obviously been right there in the bridge despite the fact that you didn't see him the last two weeks and uh, <laughs> which is another reason they shouldn't have put this episode third but uh, yeah I mean I can I can see it I, I will tell you one person who did complain about it was and I don't want to 
I don't want to get his name wrong, so I'm not going to say it because I'm not sure I'm not confusing it with another actor. The actor who played Kelso, who apparently his father was a relatively famous actor. Paul Carr. Yes. Okay, good. I, I had it right. So it's, is it also Paul Fix for Dr. Piper? Yes. Okay, so it's two Pauls. That's why I was confused. All right. Yeah, Paul Carr. I think Paul Carr's father was a, a relatively uh, accomplished or, or acted father. Um, and he complained afterwards. He's like, no, I wanted to be in this show. I, so I really <laughs> like this. I wanted to be in the show. Then I find out I'm going to be killed. It's like, yeah, I kind of liked Kelso too. I felt bad about them losing Kelso. But uh, I guess it gave Sulu his shot to move to the bridge. So, yeah, you know, cast, we've, we've added Mr. Scott as the engineer. We've added Sulu, who was not, in the, was not in the cage. We don't have Dr. McCoy yet. Yeah, although I, I, we, we don't have McCoy in that. that. That obviously stands out from the, having watched Man Trap and Charlie X, but I didn't notice Scotty in either of those. So Not much of a part. Um, was Scotty in either one of those? I'm not entirely sure he was in either one was. of those. I don't think he was. Uh, Sulu was in one of them. Yeah, Sulu was definitely in one of them. Quite a bit, actually, in, in Mantrap. Yeah. Um, I guess, okay, so I, I'll just throw out a couple things. When they put the episodes together, the network comes along and says, yeah, um, space show, people are going to be expecting monsters. Put the Mantrap first. And I don't dislike the Mantrap, and I think it's has some, again, it, it has some dilemma for our, for our cast, but it is, it is ultimately a sort of monster stalking our ship and killing people episode. Mm-hmm. I've always liked it. it. Just I, I've always liked the salt vampire, vampire, no matter how hokey that costume is. I've always just liked that, that salt vampire, and and the idea behind it. They don't need to show and that then, costume. No, they didn't. I was need astonished. To show that costume, I was really. astonished. I thought you know you can't with you can't with a concept where. You can just have a human playing the monster all the way through, or several humans, in fact. And yet, they felt the need to kind of do a shaggy monster. I don't think McCoy would have ever shot. I don't think McCoy could have done that. I think Kirk could do that, but I don't think McCoy could have ever shot if it had been a... Despite the fact that the monster was a sentient life form, and they didn't bother to try, you know, having dialogue or I think it would have had that... more impact if he had and that's again I think oh, partly it would. why I agree I was I was expecting in where man where no man has gone before them to cop out of you know resolving this issue around whether Kirk actually kills Mitchell mm-hmm. but fair enough that that makes it even more impressive the fact that they they don't duck it in the way that I think they did kind of duck it in man trap and then the, the thing I'll bring out about Charlie X, which is an episode I've never particularly liked, but some people think it's particularly good. But, you know, uh, I, again, the first time I ever watched it is pre-adolescence. So I am, uh, you know, not not watching this show with the idea of understanding what it's like to be a hormonal teenager. So you, you gain a different appreciation of it as you get older along the way, I guess, <laughs> a bit. But unlike, as you pointed out here in the in uh, where no man has gone before, we get this sort of progression as Mitchell learns his powers and and as our crew realize their powers. 
Charlie comes on board the Enterprise a fully godlike being, but for emotional reasons, he is hiding that. And he is not doing a good job of hiding it, but he is hiding it. And so it's it's a very different reveal of the power. It's as he he lets what he desperately wants, Janice Rand, uh <laughs> You know, he, he he starts by using it there to try to impress her when he can't do it any other way. And as he, quote unquote, gets away with it or he realizes that there's no consequences, his acts get worse and worse and worse, just as Mitchell. But it's it's not about the power corrupting him. It's about it's about understanding the lack of consequences. I think. That, yeah. That like, it, you know, it's, no, it is, I, I, it's just. I, I, not two episodes to examine back to back. It just isn't. I agree. The kind of the the scene is different, but it, but it the similarities are striking, and yeah. it does work. I think a lot better. I I just think where No Man Has Gone Before is a hugely better episode, and part of that is that we don't really understand Charlie X, and that's that's because he's you know he's come on board with his power and his agenda that he knows he has to hide from the members of the crew but also that means he has to hide them from us the audience and we only gradually discover what he's capable of and because he's constantly dissembling we don't necessarily know what he really thinks and you know where as you say it's all about the the consequences and the boundaries and we don't get a sense of where he where or why he is recognizing some of those boundaries or what consequences actually matter to him. Whereas True. what we get in this episode with Mitchell is not just that the powers gradually develop, but as they develop, we get to see them developing and we get to see the the doctors and Spock and Kirk discussing them developing and analyzing the consequences. And so it's always clear to us what is happening and why it's happening and what's going to happen if it's unchecked. And that, I think, puts into focus much more clearly the the kind of dilemma and the dramatic choices that Kirk in particular is going to have to make. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, we should not fail to mention, I, I sent you this, uh, I think, a while back and I don't have it quoted here in front of me, so I'm going to paraphrase it. But what happened was when they went back to make this pilot, I guess it was, I don't know, not in pilot season or whatever. Um, This has to do with the way studios work. There were no directors of photography available, which is uh, lighting cameramen in UK television. Same thing, DP, lighting cameraman. And they they were all allocated. There just weren't any available. And so someone who was part of the crew said, well, I know a guy, uh, maybe you can get us to do a favor. And they brought in Ernst Haller. who's an old man. In fact, this is like the last thing he ever did on his IMDb credits. He came in and as a favor to him, Roddenberry and crew did not know who he was. He was 72, something like that. I mean, old, retired. And they're like, we thought he was going to bring in a demo reel or uh, something to show us. And he came in with nothing. And, and I said, so, uh, well, what, what have you done? And he said, well, I did this little thing called gone with a wind. 
to which he is the Academy Award-winning director of photography for the 1939 Gone with the Wind, and many other films that you would probably know the names of, not Academy Award-winning necessarily, but looking through his list on IMDb, there are a lot of classical films like Captain Blood and whatnot that you would see that, that he did, and you go, yeah, that guy had a career. That guy had a career. And so it, this one looks good. I mean, this oh yeah, cheap budget and whatnot, this thing looks good. This looks every bit as good as Forbidden Planet, in my opinion. And admittedly, Forbidden Planet is quite a few years earlier, but that was a motion picture, and this was a television show. And they, they've done a, he's done a bang-up job. And he, he didn't do any more work on Star Trek. He did this as a favor to come in and, and take care of it, and I think he did a great job. I've always thought that particularly in the first season of Star Trek, they've had some very ambitious, noticeable photography work with colors and, and shadows and, and lights that is above and beyond the norm for television of that era. So start, who knows, maybe this is what set the idea is that we're going to do this, do this a little different, but um, it, it's uh, interesting to note. Who, who 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 did this work Lou. on the episode? Lou. And uh, it shows. It's on the screen. It's on the screen. I don't know that I have anything else. I got a few small things that I just I just want to run through. I did say I think we need to come back to that that scene where Mitchell hits on Dana in the beginning. Mm. And okay, and actually in the the sort of subsequent scene that they make that comment that she's like a walking freezer unit. Uh huh, and I have trivia about that. Go on, let us hear it. The original line was frigid, and the network's what? censors take it out. They didn't like it; too sexual. Yeah, so they changed it to walking freezer unit. I mean, walking freezer unit is better, but there's no question it's frigid. I mean, that's exactly what right. it's supposed to mean. And there is, it feels like some of those lines being written with a nod and a wink. That's the objection I have with it it's not that i'm it's not that i'm objecting them to portraying sexism it's that the way in which they portray the sexism is very kind of there's there's that combative element to it and they they did want to play up the professional woman overcompensates in in this as well because i think i think that's a theme from what would have been number one in the uh, in in the first pilot, if they had carried forward, is there is something, something Roddenberry or somebody wants to tell about professional women just not being feminine enough. I don't know what they're advocating for mm-hmm. one way or the other, but um, well, I, I certainly I certainly had a note about that that they that that line would have been I'm not it's a sexist line, and mm-hmm. the fact they give it to Dana. She has the line, gives it more legitimacy. So it's, it's, well, but Mitchell called her that first. That's true. But what, but what they're, what they're trying to, sh- what they're trying to show is a woman agreeing with that point of view, right? I don't agree with that point of view. But they, 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 sh- this is not just a, a sexist man going, oh, yeah, women, women professionals tend to overcompensate. Well, this is, this is, her saying that, mm-hmm. which makes it harder to kind of challenge and and much 
less like they are calling something out. I mean, I think they're not calling something out. There is oh, no. the fact that, no. that um, you know, Kirk explicitly makes that challenge to Mitchell. And, oh, yeah, consider it a challenge. Yeah. Mitchell's response is, is that that is unfriendly. It's not that, you know, that's incredibly unprofessional and deeply sexist. It's that it's unfriendly because he <laughs> thinks it's too hard. Uh, they haven't gotten to that point in the 23rd century where that kind of thing is sex. And and I'll, I'll add, when he makes the comment about the walking freezer unit initially, he, Daner hears it. She's <laughs> moved back across the thing and Dr. Piper smirks about it. Yeah, that's probably where I get the kind of feeling that it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all, like, all, yeah, all yeah we lad, all know. All <laughs> us lads watching at home will know what's going on there, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. it, it is... And also, I mean, it doesn't help that, oh gosh, now I can't remember, is it Jones or Smith? I think it's Jones, the yeoman that was standing behind yeah. Kirk. Uh, you know, as soon as things got a little hairy, what she do? She walks right up to Mitchell and holds his aunt. Yeah. She's like, like well, go to Mitchell. Mitchell's the guy. He's your guy for, for well, comforting. You could, and you could, you could accept that on its own if it weren't for the other stuff on the basis that that is reinforcing the Mitchell is putting it about a bit kind of storyline element. Yeah. What else? Just, I mean, we talked about Spock, but is he always going to look this nauseous? I mean, his no, they color looks down as though. if he's had some shellfish that disagreed with him. They tone it down a bit. It's they definitely it very different bit. from the cage. You know, his hair is now slit. I'm sure his ears are pointier and his sideburns are sharper, but he's very green. Yeah, they... They, I, I honestly, it was quite a few years ago or a few years after watching Star Trek that I even noticed that Spock had a power that was intentional. I mean, sometimes McCoy will call him, you know, green, call it green, basically, usually green blooded. But uh, I, I just never really noticed it. I thought he was within the normal power of human beings. So maybe I'm not the best person to say that, but I think he's toned down a bit in the series uh, than in this than in this episode. But yeah, that is he, he is always wearing makeup. He is always wearing makeup throughout the entire series to make him not quite normal color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it it just it definitely definitely was quite green and he. Didn't look that green in the cage. I'm pretty sure it wasn't that green in the other episode. So, I I noted it as a an excursion, as an experiment. They had to do some work on the ears too. I understand that they had some problem uh, making the ears, and somebody had to go. I think the props department was making. I don't. I'd have to look it up. But they actually went to an outside professional to make the ears that he ended up using during the course of the show. But the first few attempts were unsatisfactory. Uh, so, yeah, you'll, you'll probably see some adjustments to his ears as well um, as we go forward. So, okay. So, there are the espers. And what I wanted you to ask, what I wanted to ask you about that is in relation to Babylon 5, which for our Patreon listeners, <laughs> they will know that we are reviewing the show and there are now some older episodes on sound on our SoundCloud. SoundCloud. But uh, yep. so we have been discussing Babylon 5 
and the telepaths in Babylon 5. And it struck me that the way they were discussing Hespers, people who have these powers, they had a term for it, was quite similar to the way telepaths get discussed in Babylon 5. It, is, there, is there any connection with that? Has JMS said anything about it? I haven't heard anything about him making that connection. Uh, I mean, I, I could throw out and say that I think in a way they've done it a little bit better because the Esper's artist power. I mean, we've got the dilemma here of, of Mitchell just getting more and more and more and more powerful very, very mm -hmm. rapidly so that we can get this done in 50 minutes. The telepaths in Babylon 5, which at the point you and I have reviewed, we know this, they are not anywhere near as powerful as Gary Mitchell is, but they mm -hmm. themselves are working on themselves to try to make themselves more powerful. Mm -hmm. That is... That is thing. So, I mean, they are trying to follow this path. There is, there is that, the next step in human evolution, and they do have that mindset. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah. Again, that 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 next step in human evolution speech from Dana reminds me of the parallels. Yeah. So, um, but I haven't heard any specific uh, specific link, though I'm sure JMS has seen where no man has gone before. Well, I thought it was unlikely that he hadn't. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, I think that's a safe bet. I think that's a safe bet. And, uh, yeah, I mean, lastly, I just I just wanted to um, recollect the poetry of Canopius. Canopius? Um, yeah. Which, like which is, you know, that, that most famous poem is now 25, no, 26, 26 years old, I believe. So... I believe so. 1996. Um, yes, I, presumably we are already celebrating it. What a, from from, from our, that planet, vet, that planet. From, yeah. Well, obviously we we go and make <laughs> pilgrimage, regular pilgrimages, Opius, um, to 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 pay our respects to that great piece of Earth literature. I had no, I had no idea. I mean, it stands to reason in a way because obviously, like things like UFO or whatever, they were taking or space 1999 they were taking a view from the 1960s of a future but because star trek is set so much further in the future it didn't occur to me that they would mess around with what i would think of as being the near future you know then they they were only talking about 25 years ahead or whatever it would have been but uh i guess you know 25 years ahead is quite a long time for what would have been considered disposable television. Yeah, and and I will say that elsewhere in in the series they have another one like that where it is revealed that World War Three that nearly wiped out our planet occurred in the 1980s. So, um, right, but that was that was the war that got us finally on the path to becoming the, the federation that we are in uh, in the future. Okay, I should add one thing. I just thought of. Uh, I found out about last night. It's a bit of a lie. Once somebody told me about it last night, Kenneth and I were talking about space and above, the, above and beyond the series. We were talking about that, but we, after the podcast, we were talking about, I had to do this one this morning. And he goes, oh, well, I assume you're going to be looking at the uh, the bonus version that's on disc six of the Blu-rays. And I'm like, there's a, another version on disc six of the Blu-rays? He goes, yeah, the original pilot version that they used to show to the network executives, which is not the one that they changed oh. a little bit 
to show on TV. And I'm like, I I don't remember this. I mean, I I I have the Blu-rays and I've watched the Blu-rays. I don't remember this. So I searched online and I found out that there is the I somebody who's made a list of what the differences were. And as soon as I read them, I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Like there's some int- opening narration from Kirk saying, we've been given orders to go fly outside the galaxy and things like that. But it, it it's, and I think the act structure might be slightly different, but uh, it, it's, um, uh, that was apparently what the execs were shown and said, yeah, go ahead and like, and then they just edited a bit for the, for airing. So not a big deal, but I should have made sure that you were able to watch that one instead of this one. And then maybe I could have convinced you to watch it before Man Trap and Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. So then you have to watch that version and then you can see the chat. I will say this. uh, I I think, again, we have watched the the one with the updated special effects, which, again, very faithful to the original with some a little bit more color in the barrier and uh, to make it look a little less like a line in space. But um, there, this is the this is a different enterprise. This is not the same enterprise that you see in the cage, and this is not the same enterprise that you see in the rest of the series. Oh. They they kept tweaking it, and the guys that did the special effects for the made each of the three versions so that fans wouldn't go. That's the wrong enterprise. It's got the wrong radar dish in the front. It hasn't got the little the things in the back and the, the engines and uh, it's like, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to go that far, then I'm going to trust you to, to, uh, do my special effects. But, uh, anyway, that is all I've got. I'm, I'm done. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on this, uh, journey through the Star Trek pilots. Oh, bit of pleasure. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. I did. I did. Anyway, listeners. I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash Fusion Patrol or patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at fusionpatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusion patrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at the 2022 Japanese film Shin Ultraman, where John and I consider if a giant CGI superhero works on screen. We amaze at the epic nerd cred of the writer-director and are disturbed by what the citizens of Tokyo did with their cameras when the female lead was transformed into a giant and walked over them in a skirt. Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol.